Hello and welcome back to our symposium. I'm delighted to be with you and I'm thankful for the invitation to come and speak with you about this vital topic. And not only am I glad to see you folks, those that are joining us on the internet or YouTube, we welcome you as well. Um, I've been given the uh, welcome task of talking about the Bible. So talking about the Bible is something I love to do. And I'm talking today about 1 Timothy, actually. And this is perhaps a book that, uh, more than any other book, is engendering a lot of conversation, at least in the Adventist church at this time, but through the years as well. And I still can remember the first time that I preached through the book of Timothy. I was a pastor in the middle of America. And as I looked at that book, I realized that 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy is a book that summarizes almost all of the major doctrines that Seventh-day Adventists hold dear and also the lifestyle issues. It's a book that makes Seventh-day Adventists, if you will, and makes Christians, but ends up being Seventh-day Adventist Christians. So I just love the book. Um, it talks about the second coming. It talks about creation. It talks about health. It talks about lifestyle issues. It talks about salvation. It talks about the scriptures. It talks about preaching. It talks about teaching. I mean, everything that the Advent movement holds dear, Timothy touches on. Without the book of Timothy, I dare say, we probably wouldn't have an Adventist church, and we certainly wouldn't have a Christian movement because it undergirds also the, the theory of the doctrine of revelation and inspiration. Um, we wouldn't even uh, believe the Bible like we do without Timothy. So I'm delighted to talk about it. Let's pray together, and then we'll get started. Father in heaven, we're thankful tonight that we can talk about uh, what you talked about through your, uh, your servant, Paul, and you inspired him with a message for a young man, Timothy. So we ask, Lord, that you'd be with us as we think about this, uh, this book together and its relevance for our time. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We're going to look at this in two, uh, two topics or two talks. Um, I'm trying to take 20-some sermons and put them into two uh, <laughs> short talks, and uh, that's kind of hard. And so bear with me if I get exuberant, and if I, if I start going too far off the notes, you know, that I gave you tonight, just kind of go, you know, give me the sign so I can get back on track. Is it relevant, part one, you know, um, well, you know, one text just at the very beginning, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction, and righteousness. That's to tell us right now that it's relevant, right? Because if everything is given by the inspiration of God, all these scriptures, then they mean something to us today. Um, so that's what we want to look at uh, tonight. Now, um, unfortunately, um, all right. I want to start with a text, however, that I think may get your attention. Before I, I go to it from 1 Timothy, I'll tell you a story. When I was a uh, new parent, uh, we started our family a little bit uh, later than, uh, than others that I know, and we had our precious little girl, and my wife, you know, she had done everything to prepare for the child, and she was memorizing scripture, and she was singing, and she was eating, you know, vegetables and fruits and drinking juice and everything. And then we had our little child, and we were reading, you know, scriptures to her and everything. And she learned her first memory verse. And that memory verse was Joshua 22, 19. Do not rebel against the Lord. That was the memory verse. So there she was. She would go around the house, 
do not rebel against the Lord. I would be, you know, outside in the yard, do not rebel against the Lord. I would be, you know, heading to the kitchen, do not rebel against the Lord. We go to the supermarket, <laughs> do not rebel against the Lord. You know, and I would just laugh because, you know, at times it was so poignant, you know. <laughs> um, I might say something funny. I'm given sometimes a little bit of humor, maybe too much. Do not rebel against the Lord. That little text changed our whole life. Pretty soon we were saying it to each other, do not rebel. Now, when I, when I thought of that, I remember that story. I, I, I also remembered a text in Timothy. I, I never had this as a, as, a, as a young man growing up. My parents never gave it to me. But it's 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20. You know what it says there? Of whom are Hamenaeus and Alexander, whom I did deliver to Satan, that they might learn not to blaspheme. Now, how many of you had that as a memory verse growing up? <laughs> Okay, boys and girls, it's, it's time to, to say all your memory verses. Okay, I know mine. Of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I did deliver to Satan, that they might learn not to blaspheme. Wonderful job, Johnny. You probably didn't hear that, right? But as you think about that verse, what does it mean? What does it mean? I, I, I started with it on purpose because I'm kind of a preacher teacher and I want to get your attention. But it actually summarizes the entire book of Timothy, actually. And we're going to look at that. We're going to answer a couple questions as we go through. Who were Hymenaeus and Alexander and later Philetus? And what were they doing that would cause the Apostle Paul to suggest that they needed to be delivered to Satan? What were they doing? And what exactly is blasphemy? And at the end of it all, was there any hope? for these men, Alexander and Hymenaeus, all right? So let's look at those. Who were these men? To get a hint of who they are, look back just one verse at verse 19. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 19. Holding faith, it says there, holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning the faith, have made shipwrecked, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. So from that, you start to get a picture of who they are. They had put away, they had put away certain things concerning the faith. They had rejected parts of the faith, and they no longer had a good conscience. They couldn't tell what was right or what was wrong because of that rejection. And they thus made, what was the word? Shipwreck. Now, I, I, I love to look up words, okay? And for the last couple of years, I was on this theology of, study, you know, ordination study committee. And as I was there, you know, I realized I'm getting paid to go there from the tithe money. It, it, you know, if I'm being paid to go and listen to all these things, read all these papers, listen to all the arguments. By the way, it was a great time. I loved it because I, I saw all my old professors from Andrews University and other places. And I loved going to Andrews University. And I, some of my, my favorite professors were there. And we were talking. You know, and I, I was interested to see what they had to say. Um, you know, I came with my own kind of opinions. And I was open to whatever God was going to lead. But uh, so one of the commitments I made was just to look up every word in the book of Timothy. I was just going to look up every word. So I looked this bird up, shipwreck, 
And the Greek word for shipwreck is made up of two words. And this may give us an insight into who Alexander and uh, his buddy were here, Hymenaeus. The first word in that Greek word for shipwreck is the word nos, and it refers to a vessel of considerable size. I looked it up all the way through. There's different words for ships, but this one always means one of considerable size. And in fact, in Acts 27, you remember how there was a shipwreck there. And verse 37 and 41, you have this ship that was there that had, do you remember how many people were on board? 276 people on board. It was a ship of considerable size. So if you make a shipwreck and you use that word for shipwreck, I mean, this was, these were, these were, it was a big deal. These people were quite influential. They were not little boats. They weren't dinghies. <laughs> they, were, they were big people, if you will, if you want to use this word. And then the second part of the word was interesting, too. It was a ship, and it means to lead or bring. Putting those together, then, um, and, and applying it to those who made shipwreck, these were significant individuals. They were ships of considerable size, if you will. And Alexander and Hymenaeus were leaders. They were big ships. They would have been the teaching elders. They would have been people in the congregation that were leading the congregation. And unfortunately, what were they doing? It says they were teaching fables. Now, fables are creations or imaginations of the mind. They don't find themselves in Scripture, but they were just coming up with stuff that you didn't find in the Bible. They were teaching it. 2 Timothy 4, verse 2 has this to say. Preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. That's another one of the favorite words that Timothy uses. Most of the time in the New Testament used in Timothy. Uh, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts, they shall heap up for themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Okay? So they were teaching fables. So we answered our first question. We figured out who Hymenaeus and Alexander were. They had rejected certain parts of the faith. They had become confused about what was right and wrong. They were teaching fables. And if we can take a hint from the word shipwreck, they were leaders that had considerable influence. They were not small ships. They were big ships. A lot of people are on board. Well, what exactly were they doing that would cause the Apostle Paul to suggest that they needed to be delivered to Satan? That's our second question. They were using their influence, like we already have seen a hint from, to lead others. And they were leading the church in Ephesus astray. Now this should not surprise us because in Acts chapter 20, it was already warned that there would be teachers that would arise among the elders who would lead people uh, after their own way and their own teachings. But let's look more closely in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and let's look at verse 3 and 4 and 6 through 8. Let's look at them. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus, verse 3, when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. They were teaching, what does it say? Some kind of other doctrine, it says. And, you know, the word there is heterodidaskalo, kaleo, rather. 
So it, it, this meaning heterodox, not orthodox, not normal, something that was not true doctrine. The word teaching <coughs> that's used here in Timothy <coughs> in this particular verse is used 21 times in the New Testament, 15 of those times in the pastoral epistles, that would be 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, and eight times in this very book, 1st Timothy. Eight times. So a big concern that Paul has is this teaching. You know, teachers have a stricter judgment than others. And the point in Ephesus was there were teachers that were big ships and they were leading a lot of people astray. And this was the issue that was being addressed. And uh, verse 4. Nor give heed, charge some. This is a, a strong word. Charge some that they, they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is of the faith. So that word of, you know, fables... Muthas, kind of like the word myth. It's fictitious. It's a fable. It's an invention. It's something not in the scriptures. And it's something that will minister to controversy and debate. When it says it ministers questions, um, that means the subject of debate or controversy. So in other words, they were teaching things that caused huge controversy in the church in Ephesus and beyond. Look, if you have a teacher... <laughs> or a preacher that is teaching other doctrines that are causing controversy globally, that should always be a warning sign to you. And this is what was happening in Ephesus. As a matter of fact, uh, 1 Timothy 4, verse 1 says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. So at the end of time... The devil especially will attack preachers and teachers. That's the point. That's the point. Now, I hate to say this. I'm just going to have to say it, though. When I was attending the Theology of Ordination Study Committee, I not only looked up every text in 1 Timothy, and I'm, I'm not considering myself a scholar. I'm a preacher, all right? I'm a teacher. Well, I wouldn't say I'm a scholar. Um, but in this particular case, I looked up every, every single footnote, and I was actually appalled at some of the footnotes because I looked up the people who wrote the footnotes and who they quoted. One particular paper, it had 300 footnotes, over 300 footnotes. So I said, okay, I'm going to see, I'm going to look up um, all of the authors of the big points of the paper. One of them had 50 scholars that were quoted for just one point. I said, boy, that must be very important to this individual. I will look up all of those. Did you know that as I looked them up, they all had PhDs. That wasn't a problem. But some of them were practicing homosexuals. Some of them um, were actually uh, calling for New Age religion to be established. And some of them actually were promoting Wiccan beliefs and pagan beliefs. And when I looked that up, I went, whoa, I don't care. I don't care who you are. You don't quote someone who is actually in other writings giving doctrines of demons. Are you with me on this? Amen. So when I looked at that, I just was kind of appalled. So what they were teaching was fables. 
and they were leading a lot of people astray. It was ministering controversy, but then notice their method of teaching or manner of teaching. It said there that, you know, they give heed to these things. And then verse 6, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. Uh, they were affirming things. That means they were teaching and they were making strong affirmations. They were making huge speeches. They were saying, this is what the Bible says, strongly affirming it. And their teaching was leading, however, the teaching was leading to something that said it right there. Verse 9, know this, that the law is not made for the righteous person, but for the lawless and the insubordinate. So here they were, they were not using the law lawfully, and it was leading, it was setting up a situation that if followed, the teaching of Alexander and Hermeneus would lead to what? Lawlessness and disobedience. Things that were, verse 10, contrary to sound doctrine. And uh, literally that word contrary means to be against, in place of, or buried. Sound doctrine being buried. Do you get the picture here of what's happening? Do you see what's happening here? These two teachers that were delivered to Satan that they might learn not to blaspheme were actually big deal teachers and they were influencing all kinds of people and they had to be addressed. Let's go on then and look at another part of Timothy to see exactly uh, other things that define these false teachers. 2 Timothy 2, 14 through 18. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14 through 18. Yet another picture that we want to uh, add together as a profile of who Alexander and Hermeneus were and what they were teaching. Of these things, put them in remembrance. This is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14 through 18. Charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit. Okay? Now, you can do word studies, but uh, you, you can make a bunch of bizarre cases with word studies. This, I might say, I'm just going to use an illustration from Tosk, since that's what we're talking about. There were some very fanciful, fanciful, um, well, I would just say, fables, fanciful fables that were presented. I was actually amazed. Uh, I was actually embarrassed because, you know, here's the thing. I love Andrews University. I love my professors. I love the Adventist church. You remember the saying, have you ever heard the saying? Uh, <laughs> someone that talks about their family is like someone who lays flat on the ground and spits straight up. Think about that for a minute. You see, if you spit straight up, what happens? It comes right back down to hit you. So the point is, I hate to even talk about this, but, you know, how many of you have ever been, like, at, you know, watching your kid at a ball, at a ball game? You're going, okay, Johnny's up to bed. Oh, 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 and then Johnny misses it. He throws his bat, knocks the umpire out. You're going, oh, no, Johnny has embarrassed the family. So, and that's the sense. When I talk about these are my friends, right? But I was just kind of appalled. Of these things, put them in remembrance, reading, reading again, verse 14 through 18, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Study to show yourself approved unto God, verse 15, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat 
like a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus. So there's Hymenaeus again, but now he's another sidekick um, that's mentioned. That's why I quoted that. So what were they doing? Number one, let's just review what exactly they were doing. They were striving about the words of Scripture, 2 Timothy 2.14. They were thus subverting the hearers. That word subverting is the word we, it's catastrophe, which means like catastrophe. It was causing divisions. It was going to be a catastrophe. And they were not rightly dividing the word of truth. They had problems with their hermeneutics. They were not correctly understanding how to study the word. And as a result, if followed, it would lead to an increase in ungodliness. That was the problem. And it would be like a canker. The word there is where we get the original, it's kind of the root word for gangrene. It would go everywhere else. And they had erred concerning the truth. Let me ask you a question. Can even prominent big ship teachers, can they go wrong? I mean, are there any examples in Scripture where, you know, a whole bunch of teachers went wrong? Have you ever read about these cases? Um, if you read in the Old Testament, <laughs> there was a time when there was how many spies that went and how many came back and how many of them were wrong? The majority was wrong, right? So, uh, so this is a problem, right? This is what was happening in Ephesus. There was Hymenaeus and Alexander and later Philetus. And we figured out they were big ships. They were leaders, probably teaching folk. They were, they were teaching and they were teachers. And what they were doing was so heinous that they had to be actually excommunicated for a time um, and maybe forever. Now, this is where it starts to get interesting, okay? The third question I asked was, what exactly then is blasphemy? That is such a huge word. <laughs> I mean, what is it? Uh, why would Paul use such terrible language concerning these folks? I mean, they were probably orthodox in many ways. Uh, they probably said they were conservatives even. You know? <laughs> we're conservative. I mean, we're in the New Testament. How could we not be conservative? <laughs> you're you're kind of off your rocker. And he calls them blasphemers. This is, this is amazing. So what is blasphemy? You know, you think about it. In the original, what do you automatically think of when you think of blasphemy? You always think of what the evangelist says when they're preaching, right? Which is that text in John 10, 33. The Jews answered him saying, for a good work we don't stone thee. This is, this is the Pharisees talking to Jesus. For a good work we don't stone thee, but for blasphemy. And then it gives the definition of what it is. Because thou being a man, make thyself God. Now, what is blasphemy then based on that definition? It is monkeying around... Now, was, was Jesus guilty of blasphemy? Why, why wasn't he? Because he was both a man and what? So he was both. So he, they, were, they were off the rockers, right? But their definition actually was accurate. If you take a role that belongs only to God and then you take it over as a man, what, what's the problem there? That's blasphemy, Right? Um, so that's the definition. But look a little deeper. Blasphemy, the word itself, is made up of two things. Uh, like I said, as I looked up all these words, they were fascinating. Blasphemy, blapto. <laughs> you know, I immediately thought of a blabbermouth, right? But blapto, it means to hurt, to harm, to injure, and feme means to uh, defame or to report, 
to declare one's thoughts, to declare or say. So it's speech that is meant to report or declare something. It's speaking evil, slanderous, or abusive language, one lexicon told me. Blasphemy begins in the mind then, in the thoughts. It's then made known. It's declared. And those teaching it then attempt to get support for it. They want to get all kinds of people because that's why they declare it. And once they get support, they begin to persecute those who stand in opposition of it. That's what blasphemy is. Okay? That's the word. But this was the fascinating observation. Okay? How many of you have ever been studying the Bible and you just make such a fascinating observation that you wake your spouse up in the middle of the night? I used to do that, but now I don't anymore because you've heard of the great controversy. <laughs> you don't. <laughs> I remember one time I woke her up because I, I woke my wife up. <laughs> you guys are going to be so glad that you're not my wife. But I woke, I woke my wife up and I said, I, I created a new song and I want you to learn the harmony. <laughs> yeah, I don't do that anymore. No, my friends. But I made a fascinating observation. Within the pastoral epistles, I, I, you know, you can search in your Bible, you know, the whole Bible, if you have, you know, a couple months to study out words, or you can you know, search a smaller section like the New Testament. What I did was just put in the pastoral epistles, okay? So first and second Timothy, Titus. I want to get all of the things that Paul said using the word blasphemy. How many think that would be interesting to do? So being a Macintosh, I used my Macintosh computer, and I did that. And this was the fascinating, fascinating thing that I discovered. The word blasphemy is specifically used to describe any attack not only on God's system of order, any attack on God's defined role distinctions. That's what blasphemy is in the, in the pastoral of epistles. Let me say that again. Any attack on God's system of order or on his ordained role distinctions. And I might say that Timothy is probably a book that's full of more of those than almost any other book. Um, so let me show you these examples. Number one, servants and masters. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1 through 5. I want you to see this with your own eyes. So I'll slow down a little bit here so you see it. If you don't get anything else from this, get this. Because many times we just are cavalier, especially in certain cultures. We're going to hear more about a dissertation on different cultures, you know. But certain cultures are more independent. They're more like, look, you, don't, you can't tell me what to do. You don't tell me what my role is. I tell you, you know. Um, and the book of Timothy totally obliterates that. And let me show you why. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1 to 5. Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor. So there you have bondservants and what? Masters. So that the name of God and his doctrine may not be what? Blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they're brethren, but rather serve them because... Those who are benefited are believers and beloved and teach and exhort these things. And if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud and knowing nothing, obsessed with disputes and arguments over words for which come envy and strife and reviling and evil, suspicions, useless wrangling of men, corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. And from such, turn away, withdraw yourselves. Do you see that? In this, in this little passage we read, servants and how they relate to their masters 
is key. Now, you and I know it. You know, we're looking at someone to work here, maybe at Secrets Unsealed. So we unseal all their secrets by asking the, the former bosses. We say, look, we want to call you. We want to get three or four references. Why? Because we want to have people that are not blasphemers in our company. Are you with me? They're not going to blapto, speak abusive speech. You know what I mean? Are you with me? So anybody that's like an HR manager or anything, every day, all they do every day is what? They see whether or not people are blaspheming at work. And they also see if the people they're hiring are blasphemers or not. Is this true or false? And they're writing letters of recommendation. Let's look at another one. Husbands and wives. Fascinating. Uh, Titus. Look at Titus, the little book there, Titus. Titus chapter 2, verse 3 through 5. Look at it. Um, Older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, and that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their husbands. Huputasso is the word there. It means to be under the husband. It actually is a voluntary term. Like, you, you know, you voluntarily got married, right? So it's a voluntary term to be obedient to their husbands, that the word of God, the word of who? Not the word of Paul, not the word of someone else, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Now look at that. That's fascinating. How many of you are finding that the definition of blasphemy is somewhat fascinating? What about parents and children? Look back at this one, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Look at this one. I want to show you something else that I think is fascinating. Um, I'm spending a little more time with these because I want you to really get this definition. We're trying to understand why Paul would deliver these people to Satan, that they would learn not to blaspheme. And we understand it's a very pervasive thing. It's an attack on roles. Chapter 3, verse 1. Know this, that in the last days, in what kind of days? And by the way, these were the last days of Paul's life as he's writing. And these are the last days just before Jesus comes. Right now, in the last days, perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, plowed, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. Notice, blasphemers comes right in the same section of being what? Disobedient to parents. Look, in the book of Ephesians, and Pastor Bohr's opening keynote, he went through and he said, look at all these relationships between Parents and children and husbands and wives and servants and masters. Look, in, in Ephesians it says it, says it. And also here in Timothy, the same thing. Unthankful, unholy. I want you to notice something else here. Unloving, verse 3, three of 2 Timothy chapter 3. Unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying his power, and from such people turn away. But then notice this. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts. Here's the point. Paul is saying, Paul is writing here in First and Second Timothy, we need to end abuse against women and we need to do it right now. And the way to do it, he says, is how? By making sure the role distinctions are the way they should be. Husbands should be protecting wives. Are you with me? It's a powerful point that's being made here, isn't it? Do we live in an age of blasphemy? Do we live in an age of blasphemy? When I studied this, I asked myself, Don, have you ever been guilty of blasphemy? And I, 
I knelt down right then. Many times I've been guilty of it under this definition. Parents and children. And then 1 Timothy chapter 5, 17, it does the same thing looking at the relationship between, guess who? Members and elders of the church. Wow. So this issue of blasphemy is an issue of what? Confusion of roles, not just between us and God, but also servants to masters, husbands and wives, or wives with husbands, parents and children, members and elders. This was why Alexander and Hermeneus were being addressed. Now, this was what fascinated me even more than that. I think I have your attention right now, right? But look a little bit closer. This is what fascinated me even more. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1 again and verse 13. This is a beautiful thing I'm about to show you. Very beautiful. I love it. So I might as well get to it, but I'm letting you turn there. 1 Timothy chapter 1, look at it. Uh, let's look at verse 12 maybe uh, just to give a little context. I thank, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Here he is, he's going, I praise God that I'm able to unseal secrets and share amazing facts and lay out for people faith for today and have a voice of prophecy. <laughs> right? He loves the ministry. And then he says this. What does he say? What does he say? Verse 13. Fascinating words. Although, who, King James, who was before, or although I formerly was a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Here is, look at this. He's dealing with these top teachers in Ephesus, the big ships. But if any was a bigger ship than Paul, I don't know who it was. He was taught by Gamaliel. He was a huge big ship. He was born of the tribe of Benjamin. He was well known and respected. He was a linguist. He knew more than almost anybody else. And he was leading everybody astray. And he was using his position to blaspheme. And yet what happened? He admits it right here. He says, I was a blasphemer. Did you notice in that text what happens with blasphemers if they don't change? I blasphemed and then I was a persecutor and then I injured. People that are blaspheming won't just leave it alone. They will create an environment that persecutes others who don't believe like they do. You know what I'm frightened about? There's a discussion in our church, not just Ephesus, let me just apply it today, where people are saying, just let every division go their own way. And then you get people in leadership that don't reflect what the people in the pew actually believe. It's happening in America as well. We have same-sex marriages. All the people voted against that, but now the elites... And the courts have said, no, that's not constitutional. And there's going to be a backlash, my friends, against that. Someday it'll swing the other way. But this is always the pattern. Blasphemy always leads to an attack on roles. Then it leads to persecution to those who don't believe like you do. And then there's injury. But praise God that Paul, a scholar of scholars, <laughs> he could turn around. By the way, in his own life, he was a blasphemer. He made Christians blaspheme. It says in Acts 26, verse 11, he would bring them, he would torture them until they blasphemed. 
he would threaten them with slaughter, Acts chapter 9, verse 1. And he only later found out what? That in attacking the Christians, he was in fact attacking Christ himself. Acts chapter 9, verse 1, and Matthew 25, verse 40. You see, Alexander and Hermeneus were big ships. They were big ships. And they needed to be stopped or they would lead the whole vessel to shipwreck. Now, I've read some scriptures. Would you like to see what Ellen White says about Alexander and Hermeneus? And the reason I want to show you this is because I was going, okay, okay, I understand they're blasphemers, but what exactly is their big issue? Look at this. This just kind of blew me away when I found it. Shun profane and vain babbling, she quotes from 2 Timothy, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, leading into paths of supposition and imagination. <laughs> oh, man, my friends, over the last two years, I've heard a lot of supposition and imagination. Leading into paths of supposition and imagination, with which we have nothing to do. These are vain, unessential theories of human creation, which keep the mind dwelling on nothingness. And they have in them nothing sure or substantial. And then she says, who was doing this? Of those who advance these theories, Paul says, their word will eat as doth a caker, of whom are Hymenaeus and Philetus. There's our guys. Who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is already past and overthrow the faith of some. Review and Herald, February 5, 1901. So Hermeneus and Philetus were creating doctrines that tended to ungodliness. Okay? So they were teaching things that would tend to ungodliness. They said, for instance, the resurrection was past. Why would that lead, by the way, just to see if you're awake here, why would teaching that the resurrection is past lead to ungodliness? In other words, they were saying some people had already been resurrected and taken away. Well, if you've been taken away, what, would it really matter what you do? No, it wouldn't matter at all. And so it would, it would lead to ungodliness. Now re, let me read another quote. Now this should get your attention. I hope it does. These men, this is LP305. What does LP stand for? Sketches from the life of Paul. All right, sketches from the life of Paul. Thank you. These men had departed from the faith of the gospel and furthermore had done despite the spirit of grace by, now notice this, by attributing to the power of Satan the wonderful revelations made by Paul. Whoa, 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 whoa. What were they doing? Attributing to the power of Satan the wonderful revelations made to Paul. They were questioning the revelation and inspiration of God through Paul. By the way, this happens all the time in the discussion of the, the epistles relating to women's ordination. It happens all the time. Having rejected the truth, they were filled with hatred against it. I remember I was in one small group where someone in the group said, I hate this passage. They actually said it. I was like, I don't hate any passage in the Bible. <laughs> Whoa, how could you say that? I was kind of shocked. I was like, Whoa. <laughs> Having rejected the truth, they were filled with hatred against it and sought to destroy its faithful advocate. 
So what were Hamanias, Alexander, and Philetus doing? They were creating doctrines that tended to ungodliness. They said the resurrection was, had already passed, and that led to licentiousness. They attacked the veracity and inspiration or the truthfulness of Paul's revelations. Now, I'm going to read another quote. Are you ready? I'm building a number of quotes here because I want you to see what the Bible said and then what the Spirit of Prophecy said. Because, hey, wait a minute. You know, i got to tell you something. In these task meetings, no one ever studied 1 Timothy chapter 1 in their papers. Nobody did. And I know why one side didn't, but I don't know why the other side didn't. Because as you look at 1 Timothy 1, how many can see that all the issues that are really important are coming out of this? Well, I'm going to show you this next quote. And this should, well, this, this one will, if you're, not, if you're not on the edge of your seats now, you're going to be on the floor with this one. If you're on the edge, you're going to be on the floor. If you're not on the edge, you'll be on the edge. Reformatory action is always attended with loss, sacrifice, and peril. It always rebukes love of ease, selfish interests, lustful ambition. Hence, whoever initiates or prosecutes such action must encounter opposition, calumny, and hatred from those who are unwilling to submit to the conditions of reform. It is no easy matter to overcome sinful habits and practices. The work can be accomplished only with the help of divine grace, but many <coughs> neglect to seek such help and endeavor to bring down the standard to meet their deficiencies instead of bringing themselves up to meet the standard of God. Such were the efforts of these men who were so severely dealt with for their sins. What were they trying to do? Bring down the standard instead of elevate it. They were endangering the purity of the believers, and it was necessary that a firm, decided course be pursued to meet the wrong and hurl it from the church. Paul had faithfully reproved their sin. The vice, now listen to this. What was their sin? What was their real issue? Listen to this. The vice of licentiousness so prevalent in that age. What? What is licentiousness? That's sexual misconduct. That's correct. But they had refused to be corrected. Now, this is fascinating. Now, they were teachers, and their doctrine was such that would tend to ungodliness, but now she's saying this was some type of licentiousness. He had proceeded according to the instructions of Christ regarded such cases. But the offenders had given no token of repentance, and he had therefore excommunicated them. So he did the Matthew 18 thing. You know, he went behind the scenes, he talked to them, but then he probably publicly rebuked them, like it says in Timothy, you should do. They still didn't respond. They said, we can do what we want, right? And it couldn't let it go. They had openly apostatized from the faith and united with its most bitter opponents, and when they rejected the words of Paul and set themselves to hinder his labors, they were warring against, who does it say? Against Christ. It was by the inspiration of the Spirit of God and not an expression of personal feeling that Paul pronounced against them the solemn denunciation. Wow. I don't know about you, but like I said... This issue of blasphemy is very specific. It's an attack in rules, but then also it was dealing with what? Sexual immorality. Hymenaeus, Alexander, and Philetus, let's summarize then what they were doing because we were seeing exactly what their problem was. They had departed from the faith of the gospel. It had been manifest in lustful ambition. What's lustful ambition? That's 
doing away with roles that shouldn't be done away with because you are lusting after that, sinful habits and practices, specifically the vice of licentiousness, and their teaching had endangered the purity of the believers, we learned. And when they were reproved, they attributed the wonderful revelations made to Paul to Satan. And thus, they rejected the Christ-like manner. Uh, they had rejected his Christ-like manner in attempting to work with them. And when, quote, they rejected the words of Paul, they were warring against Christ himself. But I want to take an even closer look. Are you with me here? Blaspheme was the roles. Then specifically what roles? Then specifically what was their issue? Now, what I'm about to cover revolutionized my whole view of the book of Timothy. Because as I looked closer, I saw something that totally changed my paradigm of looking at Timothy. There's a text in the Bible that says this. Let me see if you can end it. I'll begin it. Begin the, the, the text. Great peace have... Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Now, that's Psalm, what, 119, 165. When someone is offended about something you say. By the way, should Christians really get offended about anything? This lady hit me today in my car, right? She hits me. She backs into me. <laughs> and I was like, I had just got honked at because... <laughs> because of the way I was driving by another lady, and I had, you know, just waved her off, and then I sat there, and I go, boy, I'm, so, I'm glad that I didn't get hurt, and that lady didn't, and I'm sitting there, and this lady puts her car in reverse and backs into my car. I was like, well, <laughs> I get to meet someone new. So pull over to the side, and we pull over to the side, and she goes, you know, oh, here's my insurance, she's crying. And I said, that's not a problem. If the car doesn't look hurt, don't bother giving me the papers. It's just very nice to meet you. And I, you know, and she goes, you are the oddest person I met. I said, you're not the only person that said that. There seems to be a lot of people. <laughs> so we started to talk with each other. I wasn't offended at all. She goes, well, can't I do something for you? And I said, well, you can let me pray for you because you seemed a little tense. She goes, you are the nicest person I met. I said, man, I wish my wife could hear you say that. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so after we had those pleasantries, you know, and I was thinking about that. That text, great peace have they with love they love. Nothing's going to offend them. Look, I didn't get hurt. She didn't get hurt. It's just a car, right? There's insurance. <laughs> That's what it's for. So now here's the point. When people are reacting, many times it means they're not at peace in some area, right? Now this is what, this is what I'm setting up to. In 1 Timothy, I'm about to show you how every one of the Ten Commandments are found in 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to show you that. You want to see that? Yeah. Every single one. Now, let me just say something before I show you this. If what, I, what I'm about to show you is actually there and you believe it and see it, as many commentators have, then Timothy becomes a book that's especially for God's people because in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 12, it says at the end of time, what does it say? Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments and have the Whoa. Now, how many want to see if they're there? Look at verse 9 and 10. 9 and 10. I'll read it to you and then I'll show it to you. Knowing this, that the law is not made for the righteous person, 
But for the lawless, the insubordinate, the ungodly, for sinners, the unholy, the profane, for murderers, for fathers of murderers of fathers and mothers and and mothers, uh, and for manslayers, and for fornicators, and sodomites, and kidnappers, and for liars, and perjurers, and if there's anything else, or any other thing, that's contrary to sound doctrine. Now let's go through those slowly. Now, verse 9, for the ungodly, the word there is uh, specifically the word for worship, destitute of reverential awe, sebomai. They don't worship reverently. What commandment is that? If you're not worshiping God reverently, you're destitute of that. You're worshiping something else other than God. What commandment is that? First commandment. First commandment. And the second commandment. Let's say you have so little disregard for God that you make an image and you worship the image. That is being ungodly, isn't it? And then what does it say next? It's not made for the righteous person, but for the lawless and subordinate, ungodly, for sinners, for the unholy and the profane. What's profanity? Pro means before. Fanu means the sanctuary, something before. What's profanity, though? It's taking the name of the Lord in vain. What commandment is that? Third commandment. For the unholy, it says there. For the unholy. Um, you know what the word unholy is? Bebleos. Beblos or bebelos. Bebelos means unholy, but literally it means to walk all over something. When I read that, it caught my attention because I remember the text in Isaiah 58, verse 13. When people disregard the Sabbath, they walk all over his holy day. So what's that alluding to? At least in one form. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And so these people are unholy. They're walking all over the Sabbath day. And then next one, murderers of fathers and mothers. That should be pretty easy. What commandment are you breaking if you just, you know, kill your parents? Certainly breaking the fifth commandment. How many of you would say that's very clear? Manslayers. What's that one? Thou shalt not kill. That's the sixth commandment. Whoremongers. Literally the uh, fornicators, uh, well, fornicators in the New King James, King James whoremongers, that's the word pornos, fornicator or adulterer. Thou shalt not commit adultery. That's the seventh commandment. Defiles themselves, it says next. And some translations, and then King James, it says defiles themselves, and for others it says sodomites. The word there in Greek is arsenokoites. Arsenokoites. Arsen means male, and coites means the bed, or we get the word coitus from it. And it's, if you read the Septuagint, and Leviticus Septuagint is, you know, from the uh, Old Testament written in Greek, Leviticus 18, 22, and 20, verse 13, forbids a man lying with another man as one would with a woman. So what is arsen of coites? It's homosexuality. Look at this. Now, now, I want to stop here just a minute. Remember, their sin was a sin of what? Licentiousness. When Paul goes to the Ten Commandments, guess which one he amplifies? He amplifies the Seventh Commandment, and he adds in not just a classical form of adultery, he puts in homosexuality. The issue in 1 Timothy chapter 1 was role distinctions being broken down, but specifically Role distinctions as relating to the seventh commandment, specifically homosexuality. Specifically what? And some people today would say, Timothy has nothing to do 
with homosexuality or the ordination debate has nothing to do with homosexuality. Well, my friends, it does, and here's why. In Timothy, everything that attacks any rule distinction, any rule distinction that's based on gender or anything else that the Bible claims to be a rule distinction or differentiation, you might say, is fair game. And that's what was going on in 1 Timothy. How many can see that? Then, man-stealers. Next. Man-stealer would be what? Says kidnapper. Literally, it's a slave dealer or a slave trader. And what commandment is, is that? Thou shalt not steal. Now, by the way, some people today in the women's ordination debate, they say, look, you know, if you don't ordain women, you're treating them just like slaves. Well, if you're reading 1 Timothy, there is... Uh, there's a problem that you have here because the Bible here in 1 Timothy is very clear that slavery is wrong. This is one of the texts that they read to do away with slavery. In fact, you want to hear John Wesley's notes? The worst of all thieves. This is based on this particular verse. The worst of all thieves in comparison of whom highwaymen and housebreakers are innocent. What then are the most in tra traders of Negroes, procurers of servants for America, and all who list soldiers by lies, tricks, or enticements. The worst thing you could do, according to John Wesley, based on this text, was to be involved in slavery. And by the way, when you're talking about this, uh, this whole thing, those two are totally unrelated to one another in the text even here. Are you with me? That's commandment number eight. Remember, we said the Ten Commandments were there. How are we doing? I have to find two more here in this list, and they're right there. It says liars and perjurers. Which one is that? Thou shalt not bear false witness. That's commandment number nine. And then it says, as it ends up the list there in verse 10, if there be any other thing that is contrary to hugneon or sound doctrine. You know what the word hugneon is, by the way? Healthy. In other words, if you're not keeping the commandments, you're not healthy. So if there be anything else, by the way, remember the last commandment? Nor is ox, nor is ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor. It's almost as it's lifted out of the 10th commandment. How many of you can see then that the commandments are what's being put in focus here by Paul? And by the way, it makes sense because he was saying earlier that people are misusing the law. They don't understand the law. The whole context is the law. By the way, just before we leave the commandments, I can't, uh, you know, I want to just point this out. Role distinctions in the Ten Commandments are very clear, aren't they? Thou shalt have no other gods. Don't put yourself in place of that. Don't have any graven images. Don't put that in place of it. Don't take the name that is meant for me and use it some cavalier way. Don't use it in a different a role. Remember the Sabbath day, no other day. Are you with me? You see that. Don't sleep with someone who's not your spouse. And that includes a man if you're a man or a woman if you're a woman. Everything about the Ten Commandments is related to defining what role distinctions are and making the point that those role distinctions are from who? God. And if you keep them, what will happen? Great peace have they which love thy law. Nothing will offend them. And they'll be hugneon. 
It'll be sound doctrine. It'll be good doctrine. It'll be a kind of doctrine that keeps you healthy. Are you with me? Okay. So let me ask you a question so far. <laughs> I mean, we're only into this a little bit. Is Timothy relevant for today? Do we live in an age when most leadership in the world and some even in the church are confused about the very things we're talking about? Is there indulgence in our culture concerning some of the very things God defines as being blasphemous? And is there indulgence even within the church? Do we live in an age where religious leaders are attempting to give biblical reasons to disregard the very distinctions drawn that we've seen tonight? Do we live in that age? Do we live in an age when taking the stand against homosexuality is seen as bigotry? You know, just last week, there were several universities who had on their books laws against allowing homosexuals to be admitted or to be on their campus that were put under review by the accrediting agencies of this country. And Timothy is specifically speaking to that issue, among others. Will we have the confidence to stand against that onslaught. And I want to tell you something. If we can't stand on small things, we're not going to be able to stand on bigger things. Is, is Timothy relevant today? Do we live in a day of blasphemy? <laughs> do we? We do. So we've answered several of our questions. Who were Hymenaeus and Alexander and later Philetus? What were they doing that would cause the apostle to suggest they needed to be delivered to Satan? What exactly is blasphemy? Boy, we've had quite a great study, haven't we? But now, the final question. Was there any hope? Was there any hope for these men? Is there any hope? Well, read the text again that we started with. 1 Timothy 1, verse 20 of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they might learn not to blaspheme. Is there any hope in that text? What is that? That they might what? They might learn. Praise God for that. They might learn something. How many of you think that's good news? They might learn. By the way, later in 1 Timothy chapter 2, it talks about others learning. All the way through the book, it says learning. Is the idea that needs to happen. That's why we're having this symposium, so people can learn not to blaspheme. How many of you want to learn not to blaspheme yourselves? I want to learn not to blaspheme. And Paul had learned. Well, let's look at it. The testimony of power. Look 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, the last part through 17. Sound doctrine. It starts with, According, how do you learn? What's the good news, the hope? Uh, goes through all the list of the Ten Commandments, and then it says, anything that is contrary to sound doctrine. So the good news, first of all, is that there's, there is unsound doctrine, contrary to sound doctrine. There's, you know, heterodoxy, and there's orthodoxy. <laughs> there's good doctrine. How many of you say, hallelujah, there's good doctrine. And how do you know what that good doctrine is? Verse 11. According to the glorious gospel of our blessed God, which was committed to my trust. So there's hope. There's hope through hearing this 
sound doctrine. There's hope through the glorious gospel, the good news. Continue on. I thank God, verse 12, who enabled me. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who enabled me. Man, you know, when I was preaching through this, I went through every single word. Christ, the Messiah. Jesus, who saves us not just in our sins, but from our sins. The Lord, you know, go through all those. We don't have time. Who has enabled me, that's power. Putting me, counting me faithful. Putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. You see, there is only hope for those who admit that they're blaspheming and admit their sin and turn from it. And there's hope through the enabling power of God to turn around not just small ships or dinghies like myself, but big ships. Amen? <laughs> Going on, verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm chief. That's good news. How many think it's good news? For this reason, verse 7, 16, I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all, all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe. He's saying, look, I was a blasphemer and oh, it was terrible. I'm so glad I was because if he can save me, he can save you. It's good news. And he says, look, I'm to be used as a pattern. I'm like the worst of the worst and now God's using me. Is Timothy just for people in Ephesus? How many of you want that good news to be for you as well? When you look throughout Timothy, if you look, if you were, I mean, I have it written down here. I mean, I, I can't really see it on the camera, but if you want to just take a picture of my notes, I have this list of everything that's universal from Timothy. Right? There is so much that we need to see in our own selves even now. Okay, let's keep going. Others can change is the point. Of whom were Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I did deliver to Satan, that they might learn not to blaspheme. That they might learn. I want to talk about that. Padeo or padeuo. I don't know exactly how to say the Greek word. It doesn't matter, but that's the Greek word. You know that word is an interesting word. I looked it up. Like I said, I looked up every word. But when I looked at that one, it was another gem. You know what it means? To chastise. It means to train children. In other words, what Paul was saying to Alexander and Hermeneus was, look, you think they're the teachers. You're big ships, but you need to become like little children. You need to learn again. And you know how I know it? Because I needed to learn again, he says. Timothy then became a change agent. You know, if you leave, have you ever heard the saying, I think it was Margaret Thatcher, that said, he who leads when no one follows is merely taking a walk. Remember hear that? Paul not only changed himself, but when he changed, other people started to follow him. And who was it that followed him? Timothy did. What does Timothy mean? God honoring is the name. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2. He's called my own son, my son in the faith. Genesios. That is a technical word, my legitimate child, my genuine child, a true child, my product. This is my son. It's not a nathos. It's not a bastard. 
This is my son in the faith. Not biologically. His mother and father were a Greek and a Hebrew. That's why I could reach all those different groups. Acts 16, 1 to 3. But it was a son in the faith. Philippians chapter 2, verse 19 through 22. There was none like-minded, he said, like Timothy. You see, once we're converted, once we stop being blasphemers, we can not only change, but other people will follow us, and even young people like Timothy. My own son in the faith. And in the faith, what does that mean? Remember, Alexander and Hymenaeus had abandoned aspects of the faith, but Timothy had not abandoned any aspect. He embraced every aspect of the Bible. He didn't say, oh, this was just written for my local time and situation. <laughs> he went everywhere. And I want to show you that. You see, he embraced the entire belief system Timothy did. And so Paul could send Timothy on his behalf as a faithful ambassador. Notice what Paul was, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of the Lord. He was an apostolos. He was to be sent out as God's ambassador. And it was by the commandment of the Lord. Can you see why that phrase, commandment of the Lord, is so important? Because later he would go through all the Ten Commandments. Right? And he would go forth... And so would Timothy, uplifting every aspect of God's law, even the role distinctions that are defined by his word and buttressed by his law. Why was Timothy sent to Ephesus? <clears throat> to turn around those big ships. But he could be sent anywhere because Paul's message was not just for Ephesus. It was for everywhere. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17 to that regard. This, when I read it, I was sitting at the General Youth Conference and all these preachers were preaching about being a spectacle to men and angels, but they never got to the real issue of the past. I was, have you ever been a preacher? You're listening, you go, oh man, I hope they get there. I'm not, but. I'm not saying that, I'm, I'm not saying that, they pro people are saying that probably right here. They're going, oh man, I hope he gets to something else. But you know the big issue there, <clears throat> to be a spectacle to men and angels was by faithfulness to every part of God's word, to even be killed by the lions in a spectacle. And then right after it says that, right after it talks about that, by the way, you know we get this, you know we get these signs thumbs up and thumbs down? It's from those huge spectacles. And when they would say, you know, they would they would point to the crowd, do you want them to live or die? Actually, down would mean they would live. Up would mean they'd take the sword and go up and kill them. That's what that would mean. So we kind of have our signs backwards. So when you do that, <laughs> I'm going to ask you, are you a New Testament or Roman scholar? Because that means a different thing, <laughs> right? So anyway, they were a spectacle. In other words, willing to live by God's word and die for God's word. Now look at this text in that regard. 1 Corinthians 4, 16, 17. This just came alive to me in my study of 1 Timothy 1. Wherefore I beseech you, be followers of me, he's talking to the Corinthians. For this cause have I sent unto you Timothy. Well, he's not just in Ephesus now, he's in what? Corinth. Who is my genuine beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of, what does it say next? My ways which be in Christ. 
In other words, Paul's saying, my teaching is like Christ's teaching. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And that doesn't mean he wasn't imitating Christ. Are you with me? And then what's it say next? The last few words. As I teach everywhere in how many churches? Every church. Look, Timothy could be dropped anywhere in the Greco-Roman world. And he could show up here today. And his message that Paul gave him from the Lord would be just as relevant here as it would be anywhere else. That's the picture. Now, is this storyline really new? Is what we've read here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, did you, how many of you learned anything new tonight? All right. Okay. All right. There's a couple of you not raising your hand, so I'm going to have to go afterwards and talk to you and see what I can learn from you. Okay? All right. Is it really new? Is it really new, though? Let see what I'm saying here. Let me just summarize what we learned. Is it really new where God had to intervene by sending a young man into his church that was confused about role distinctions? Is that really new? And had to uplift the law of God, the ways of God. Is that really new? And had to deal even with homosexuality and other role distinctions. Is that new? As a matter of fact, it's not. And I want to do two things in our remaining time. And that is, I'm going to show you an, an Old Testament example and a contemporary example before we close. Go with me in your minds now and in your Bibles, if you would like, to 2 Kings chapter 23. 2 Kings 23. Now, what I'm going to try and show you, you know the preacher that used to say, tell them what you're going to tell them, then tell them, and tell them what you told them. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to show you an exact parallel for this New Testament chapter in the Old Testament. The reason I'm going to do that is because I want you to see that the consistent word of Scripture is consistent in the Old Testament and New Testament concerning these issues. And then I'm going to give a contemporary example and hopefully make some kind of appeal. Are you with me? 2 Kings chapter 22. Now, I am not going to go through this whole chapter reading verse by verse although I would like to. Well, I might, I might have time to actually do it. I'm, I'm doing fairly good. Someone else went through 19 pages the other day, and I'm trying to uh, catch up with them and see if I can unseal those secrets of how to do that. 2 Kings 23, verse 1 to 3. Let's look at it. Now the king sent them together, all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, to him. The king went up into the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah, and with him all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the prophets, and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the house of the Lord. Then the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimony and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul, and to perform the words of his covenant that were written in this book. And all the people took a stand for the covenant. Here was someone calling for revival and reformation, and the call had come to him first. And it had changed his life, and then he said, I'm going to call others to that. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that we live in a time where we have a general conference president who's calling for revival and reformation. And not only that, he's out doing evangelism and doing all the things a pastor does. Amen? This was what the case was back then. Then notice what happened. This led to verse 4. The king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the doorkeepers 
to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the articles that were made for Baal, the Ashtaroth, and all the host of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried the ashes to Bethel. Whoa! He didn't just talk revival. He went in and started to clean it up. <laughs> he took out all the worship elements. You might say if he went in and there was a rock and roll band, he would have taken out all the drums. You might say he would have gone in and taken out even, the, even out the, 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 the soundtracks. Okay? He didn't just leave it to other people. He wanted revival and reformation in this particular king. And it led to a cleansing of the sanctuary. Can I hear an amen for that? Verse 4. Then what happened next? Notice this. Verse 5. Then he removed, notice this in your Bibles, he removed the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense on the high places in the cities of Judah and the places all around Jerusalem and those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun, to the moon, to the constellations and the host of heaven. Wait a minute. Now he starts to remove ill-advised leadership that's put in, put in place that's not following the Bible and he begins to do what? Reverse ordinations. Man. This guy, this is something else. Verse 6. Not only that, verse 6, it's almost like he listened to our study on 1 Timothy chapter 1. He brought out the wooden image of the house of the Lord to the book, Brook Kidron outside Jerusalem and burned it by the book, Brook Kidron and ground it to ashes and threw its ashes on the graves of the common people. Whoa. In other words, he took roles serious. You don't have an idol. You worship the Lord. By the way, that Brook Kidron is the very place where Jesus would go down, down, down and up to the Garden of Gethsemane. Right? He did that. Number five, notice what happens next. This really gripped my attention. Verse seven, then he tore down the ritual booths of the perverted persons that were in the house of the Lord where they wouldn't, the, the women wove hangings for the wooden image. And he brought all the priests from the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places at the gates, which were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were to the left of the city gates. What did he do? He removed all the perverted persons. In the King James, I think it says sodomites. In the margin of my little Bible, it says here, uh, Kedashim, those practicing sodomy and prostitution in religious ritual. Look at this. Do you see the parallel with 1 Timothy in here? Specifically, there was a breaking of the commandments. There was role distinctions that were messed up. There was false ordinations. And along with those false ordinations was an allowance of, along with those false ordinations, was an allowance of what? sodomites and homosexuality. Is there a connection between homosexuality in this chapter and false ordination? Is it right there? Consider the authors. You know, you know again, I, I want to remind you that when I was at Toss, there were actually authors that were quoting sources of people who were practicing homosexuals. It is no secret to me that people that are practicing homosexuality or saying it's okay would have no problems with ordination of women or anything else. I mean, why is that a secret? Let me quote a couple of those scholars for you, and then I'm going to go on with the story. Here was one of the uh, people that was listening in one of the footnotes of the paper. This is what she said. Her name is Iolona 
Raskow. And this is her book. This should give you a hint as to where she's headed and why on earth you would quote like someone like this in your paper at a Seventh-day Adventist Theology of Ordination Study Committee. I don't know. But listen to this. This is the name of her book, one of her other books. This is not what was quoted from, but any scholar should kind of know who you're quoting from. How are you with me? If I was like quoting tonight, okay, I'm going to quote from a few mass murderers, how many would think that's okay? Probably not, not a good idea. Listen to this. This is the title of the book. Psychology and the Hebrew Bible, Reading Through the Lens of Freud and Lucan. Now, how many, how many would want to quote like so, someone like that in your paper? But anyway, it happened. Now, this is what she believes. When writing about sexuality in the Old Testament, this is what she says, that the account of Noah and Ham is one of Noah fantasizing about homosexual activity or possibly initiating such and a liaison with his son Ham. In her view, though blasphemous to many, it's perhaps understandable when one recognizes that she reads the Old Testament scriptures through the lens of Freud and Lucan. So here she is, she thinks, and then on the basis of that, she says homosexuality is okay. Here's another one from that same uh, paper who was quoting various sources. I thought you might want to just know the behind-the-scenes stories of some of the quotes <laughs> before you jump on various bandwagons. Here it is, quoting Trevor Dennis, who was the vice dean of Chester Cathedral, in an editorial that came out after the person's paper, I think, was written, so to be fair, they probably didn't know this was about to happen. This particular scholar who they quoted was in favor of the interpretation of the Bible that celebrates same-sex relationships. He sees Ruth and Naomi as a depiction of a les lesbian love affair where Boaz was married by Ruth so that she and Naomi could protect their partnership. Why in the world would you quote people like this in your paper? I'm just wondering. Okay? And let me just, where there's smoke, friends, I'm just going to say there's fire, okay? And I'm going to say, in both the New Testament and the Old Testament, these are the kind of things that I think Timothy and uh, Josiah would be getting rid of. How many of you are with me? Another quotation for that paper, and then we'll get back to our story in Kings. A quotation of Deborah Sawyer, who in another work argues that the early church of the first century and other non-Christian religions of the period allowed a broader spectrum of beliefs and values and wider gender boundaries than Christianity after this period. She decries, quote, the monolithic Christianity of 2,000 years and its essential sexual hierarchy. Notice she thinks that there's a hierarchy. She thinks that's bad and also free sex should be freed up. In light of her research, notice where she's headed. She explains that one of her desires is to, quote, assist New Age religions, the new pagans, and wicked movement, and goddess spirituality in rediscovering the great pagan traditions of the past. Let me just ask you a question. Why in the world, if you've got the Bible and the spirit of prophecy to quote from for your paper, would you ever quote something like that? Are you with me? Now, in light of that, how many think the story here in 2 Kings 23 is coming alive? Because Josiah is following through on that. He's not only had a personal revival and reformation, he's not only then cleaned out the temple, he's not only then got rid of the false priests and even the perverts who were in the temple. Guess what? When he did that, guess what happened? I'm going to show you next, verse 8 and 9. He brought all the priests from the cities of Judah and who defiled the high places and the priests. We read this verse already. I'm just repeating it. From Geba to Beersheba, and he broke down the high places 
at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were to the left of the city gate. But then notice what happens. How did they respond to his wonderful ministry? Nevertheless, mark it well, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brethren. You know what they were saying, basically? You know what? Who made you the boss? We're not coming up. We don't have to listen to what you say. We're going to do what we want to do in our part of the world. And guess what? We're just as holy as you are as well. We eat unleavened bread, which stands for no sin. What we're doing is right, and what you're doing is wrong. But did that stop Joe Ash from continuing on? No, it didn't. Look at verse 10 through 16. He defied Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnon, that no man might make his son or daughter pass through the fire of Moloch. Then he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the son at the entrance of the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the officer who was in the court. And he burned the chariot of the sun with fire. The altars that were on the roof of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars of Manasseh and the, had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord, the king broke down and pulverized right there and threw their dust into the brook Kidron. Then the king defiled the high places that were to the east of Jer Jerusalem, which were in the south of the Mount of Corruption. They even have a mountain called Corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built in Ashtaroth and the abomination of the Sidonians, and the Chemos, and the abominations of the Moabites. You know what Moabite means? Who is my daddy? And, the, and Mikcom, and the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he broke into pieces the sacred pillars, and cut down the wooden images, and filled their places with the bones of men. Moreover, the altar that was at Bethel, and the high places which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who Israel... Who, who made Israel's sin had made, both that was cast down and he burned the high pace and, and crushed it to powder and burned the wooden image. And Josiah turned and he saw the tombs that were there on the mountain. And he set up and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed, who proclaimed these words. You see what he was doing here? He was not only cleansing the here and now, he was symbolically dealing with the errors of all previous administrations. He was saying, Solomon did something wrong, let's admit it. Manasseh did something wrong, let's admit it. Jeroboam did something wrong, let's admit it. I don't know about you, but that's pretty gutsy. How many think that's pretty gutsy? And then not only that, verse 17 and 18, he said, what gravestone is this I see? So the men of the city told him, It is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and proclaimed these things which you have done against the altar of Bethel. And he said, Let him alone. Let no one move his bones. And so they let his bones alone and the bones of the prophet who had come from Samaria. You know what he's saying? He not only dealt with the errors of the past and said that was wrong. You know what he did? He said, There were faithful people back there. Don't mess up their bones. Leave them alone. Make a memorial to them. They were the reformers. I don't know about you, but I think this is a how many think this is a wonderful chapter? Can you see the connection between this chapter and 1 Timothy chapter 1? A magnification of the activities of those who had prophesied accurately concerning the future revival. And then verse 19 and 20. 
Now Josiah also took away all the scribes of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made to provoke the Lord to anger. And he did to them according to the deeds that he had done in Bethel. And he executed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned men's bones on them. And he returned to Jerusalem. You know, sometimes we're so concerned. What are we going to do if we have to confront people that have been led the wrong way? I'm not advocating that we take literally these verses and go start executing people. Well, I'm going to make an observation. If people knowingly are doing what's wrong and leading others to do it, they're going to have to deal with someone who will bring judgment at the end of time. It's not my job. It's not your job. No one wants that to happen. Paul didn't want it to happen to Alexander and Hermeneus. He said, oh, I hope they learn. And God didn't want it to happen to Paul. And so he said, I hope he learns. Amen? Amen? That's the picture. And then verse, the next one, verse 21 through 23. Then the king commanded all the people saying, look at this, after he cleaned everything up, look at these beautiful verses. Keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as is written in the book of the covenant. And such a Passover surely had never been held since the days of the judges who judged Israel nor in all the days of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah. It was nothing like they'd ever seen before. They had a Christ-centered celebration. Revival and reformation went everywhere. You know, that's what we need. We need that to happen so the latter rain can fall again. It started once in the Adventist church, and then it came back. You know, I read a paper from someone who said, you know what they said in their paper? The theology study ordination, they said, look, unless you follow and do what we say concerning ordination, the latter rain will never come. But this particular passage gives a totally different picture. It says the exact opposite. In other words, unless you deal with revival and reformation as a personal issue as, a, as leaders, and all of us are leaders of someone, I tell my kids, you're the leader, leader of the gerbils in the house. <laughs> you feed the pets. <laughs> I know you're glad you're not my kids. But unless we have personal revival and reformation that then leads in our, into our downline, you know, God wants to do that. He wants that to happen. He wants to come again. Amen? Amen? And then notice what happens. I thought this was interesting when I read it. But in the 18th year, oh, where, where was I? I was 21. Kept the Passover. Not... Uh, um, <clears throat> the best Passover they'd ever held. But in the 18th year, the reign of the King Josiah, this Passover was held uh, beyond the, uh, before the Lord in Jerusalem. Moreover, verse 24, Josiah put away those who consulted mediums and spiritists. In other words, you wouldn't be quoting those sources I just read in your paper. Amen? And then notice what happened. And the household gods and idols and the abominations that were seen. In other words, the revival and reformation started with leadership. It went everywhere. But isn't it interesting that there's a connection between revival in the home and revival in the church? Can you see that? Very fascinating. Some people say, oh no, the home is totally different than the church. No, my friends. A home is a little church. Now, after reading this whole thing, how many of you, first of all, could see the parallels? But now let me just ask you this question. Would you like to see how God, through inspiration, characterizes this particular pericope or this particular activity of the king? Would you like to see his summary statement? Amen. 
Well, let's look at it. It's verse 25. How were these acts described and summarized? Now, before him, this is Josiah, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses. Not after him did any arise like him. How is the story closed of this example? There was never anybody like this guy before him or after him. What he did was the right thing. Personal revival that led to corporate revival, that led to cleansing of the sanctuary, that led to a, a putting aside of false ordinations and homosexuality that came into the church. Personal revival that led to a cleansing of the entire camp from the home to the palace. Personal revival that led to a celebration of the Passover. There never was a king like him before him. There never is going to be one like after him. But I think there was one. You know who it was? It wasn't a king, but there was someone similar. It was Timothy. Timothy went to Ephesus and did the same thing that Josiah had done long ago. Long ago. Do we need more modern-day Pauls? Do we need more modern-day Timothys? Do we need more modern-day Josiahs? Do we need a God who will still work through people to bring revival and reformation at every level? Now, I have, surprisingly, a few minutes left. And I'm so happy that I do because <laughs> I want to share a contemporary example. Remember, I tell you an ancient example and then a contemporary example. I want to end with a contemporary example of denominational courage, okay? Let me ask you a question to start this off. What is the largest Protestant denomination in the United States? It's the Southern Baptist Convention, some 16 million members. If you add women and children, um, of course, there's women that are members there, but uh, if you add children and, uh, you know, friends and whatnot, you'd have many more. Now, let me just give you a little history of this denomination. <clears throat> Beginning in 1979, the Southern Baptist Convention experienced, this is from their own, from a book on this that I read, experienced one of the most contentious and significant denominational battles in American religious history. That's what the historians call it. Well, what were the issues that they were dealing with in the Southern Baptist Convention back in 1979? Number one, abortion. Number two, homosexuality. Number three, women's ordination. And number four, the overarching, overarching issue undergirding all of them, the supremacy of Scripture concerning all the above and more. This is the way the historians describe it. So what were the things they were dealing with? Abortion. That's the killing of children in the Old Testament would be like sacrificing them to Moloch. We just saw that in Josiah's time, right? Homosexuality. We saw that both back in uh, Josiah's time as well. False ordination, in this particular case, women's ordination, which they were struggling. Is it false or is it true? And then the undergirding issue was what? The supremacy of Scripture in all things. They carefully studied the issue. They had a theology of study committee, ordination study committee, okay? They carefully studied it. And you know what they did? They, even though they had been ordaining women to ministry, they reversed course. And when they did this, they had 1,600 ordained women filling various roles. 1,600 women fulfilling different roles. Now, what had they realized? What led them to this? These are quotes from a book, a history book, 
that I got when I was in Texas. I actually went to a seminary that has the history of all this. I didn't realize it was, but I went into the bookstore and I found this book. This is what they realized. They realized that, quote, the historic Baptist tradition of dissent against culture had largely been lost, at least in the highest levels of denominational life. So they said, look, we're no longer dissenting Baptists. We were willing to die, so we were not sprinkled, but now we can't even stand up to the culture. Number two, they realized that the American culture had turned hostile to the traditional forms of faith and biblical belief. How many of you believe that's still true today? Number three, they realized that the leadership of a religious organization is not necessarily, that the, the leadership of a religious organization is not necessarily reflective of the rank and file members of the churches that make up the denomination. Ah, my friends. Uh, the Baptists learned that sometimes people get into positions of leadership because they compromise. And they don't reflect, many times, the rank-and-file folks. What else did they realize? They realized that the view that the Bible contains error, which was then being proffered off in their Theology of Ordination Study Committee, it came up that supposedly the Bible was in error in some places. And by the way, I hate to say this, because again, talking about your family is like doing what? Laying down and spitting straight up. But I hate to admit it that there are actually some sectors of the world church whose representatives actually said this in our Theology of Ordination Study Committee. They said, oh, you can't trust this, you can't trust that, and that the, there's baggage and errors in the Bible, right? Or that certain parts can't be listened to. So this is what the Baptists learned. What they learned was that the view that the Bible contains error and they came to this conclusion, that's worth fighting against, they said. That's the first domino, they said, to fall. If we don't fight now, we'll lose everything. Because everything depends on your view of Scripture. How many think the Baptists might be onto something? And then they also realize, and I want to spend just a couple minutes on this one since I have so much time left. They realized that the moderates... That is, the leaders who stood for what the moderates called themselves the grand compromise. The moderates were saying, look, we're the ones that hold the nomination together. <laughs> we don't allow the liberals to go too far, and we don't allow the conservatives to go too far. They realized something. They began to call them up and ask them where they stood on various issues. And then they saw some things happen in the nomination, and they realized these leaders who, quote, stood for the so-called grand compromise did, have, did not have the stamina to stand up to the culture. And when push came to shove, they never would stand up to culture. And guess what happened? That led to the change in the Southern Baptist denomination. That's what led to it. Now, I want to just give a contemporary example here. And I'm saying this to people that are watching, okay? And here, you, if you are a moderate today, you're not part of the solution at all. You take yourself out of the equation. You have two ways to go. One is to go liberal. We've seen where that is in 1 Timothy 1, and we've seen where that is in 
kings, and the other way is to go conservative. But if you're a moderate, you're meaningless in the present discussion. And don't think that you're helping the situation. And the thing is, how can I get you to, to get off the fence, okay? If what I've presented so far tonight hasn't got you off the fence, I don't know what would, okay? I really don't, because that's, that's a very powerful Bible study, at least to me. And, and the reason I'm telling you I think it's powerful is because it got me off the fence. When I learned what I studied with you, I was like, man, this is so clear. I, uh, I'm going to speak. You know, let me say something. It's very easy to be cowardly and think, well, I just won't say anything. I'll see how things shake out. It's very easy. There's not too many people here tonight. Probably a lot of people watching on the Internet, though, because they know people can't see what they're doing. Those of you watching on the Internet, you pastors out there that know this is wrong, don't be a moderate. Stand up for what's right. Even you scholars, there are some scholars I know that say, I'm with you, Don, not with, that are with me. I know this is wrong, but, 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 but. At the end of time, there's sheep and goats. The goats are the ones that but. This is not the time to but. This is the time to say, I'm taking a stand. Now, look, you know what happened to me? I was at this thing, and I, I, as I watched, and I watched these dynamics, I became more and more convicted that I personally had to say something. That's why I'm here. But I'm going to tell you, it was a struggle. They asked me to read the statement at the Theology of Study Ordination Committee. I was like, okay, I'll get up and read it. I get up there and read it, not knowing they're going to put on the screen. Proposal number one, Don McIntosh. I was like, oh, guess I'm out of the closet now. <laughs> but you know what? That was the most freeing feeling to me. Because guess what? I realized that this is not the time to be on the fence. Now, let me give you an example as to why you should not be on the fence. You see, they realized in the Southern Baptist Convention that the Scripture was worth fighting for, that the rank and file were not like the leadership, that the moderate plan to just kind of palliate culture and go along with it was not going to work. And uh, there was a, the litmus test for them that really got them off the wall was abortion, supremacy of Scripture, and then women's ordination as well, and homosexuality, all those. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you really think that the moderates in the Adventist church are going to stand up to the culture in the Adventist church? Do you think they will? Do you think they're going to back you if you take a stand for homosexuality? Well, let's see what happened. Recently, there was a guy named Eric Walsh. He's a well-known physician in uh, the Loma Linda area. And he was a pastor of his local, lay pastor of his local church. And he did a lot of speaking. In fact, one of his sermons, he was specifically speaking about the issue using the phrase without regard to gender that was used in one of the unions. And they wanted to pass this idea of ordination without regard to gender. And he was talking about how dangerous that is. Well, he had been invited to be a graduation speaker at a local community college. And... Uh, well, he wasn't invited. Someone was disinvited from speaking there, a graduation speaker, because, uh, because they were so militant for the homosexual lifestyle, and so then they invited him. The students who were very close to this person who had been invited and now was feeling very rejected, they began to look at everything on the Internet they could find about Dr. Walsh. 
and they listened to all his audio verse sermons and they found these statements about without regard to gender. I was talking about the ordination issue and he was talking about homosexuality. And guess what? They turned it in. Eric Walsh was disinvited to be the graduation speaker. Then they also turned it into the LA Times and they turned it into his employers. And guess what? Dr. Walsh was fired. But that's not the thing that concerned me the most. When he was fired, his local conference distanced themselves from him. They didn't stand up to him for him. And the legal department that was helping write the briefs and whatnot, even from the general conference, didn't stand up for him. My friends, he was thrown under the bus. That's a sad thing. But if you think moderates are going to stand up for you or liberals when it comes to confronting culture, you better be warned by such things. They're not going to do it. Are you with me? Thankfully, another faithful person hired Dr. Walsh. He's now going to work in a clinic as a physician in Guam. God has taken care of him. However, my friends, I believe it is time for people to make a choice. This is not the time to come up with some third option that tries to compromise. This is not the time for that. Not the time. That's what we've done all along. It's not the time for compromise. And it's illusionary to think this issue is not connected to the Ten Commandments. I'm going to show you that tomorrow. This issue, I'm going to show you clearly how in chapter 2 and 3 there's a connection with the Ten Commandments just like there was in chapter 1. How many want to come back? Well, let's finish up the story about the Seventh-day Baptist, or, or the Southern Baptist, excuse me. What happened to their membership when they took this stand in 1979 or 80? In 1980, their membership was 13,700,000 people when they took that stand. When they took the stand, their denominational figures just plummeted. Is that what you think happened? Absolutely not. They went up by 1995, just 15 years later, to 15,400,000, by 2000 to 15,900,000, by 2005 to 16,600,000, by 2006, 16,306,000, 2007 kind of balanced off. It's now coming down a little bit, but I want to make the point. They didn't hurt one iota in mission or, 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 or evangelism at all. Guess why? And guess what? <laughs> The people have come out in loads to all their general conferences to ensure that these moderates and liberals never get back in again. They don't want their church going that way. Here's the final submission statement from their, from their deliberation on this whole thing. This is what they resolved, and I, I think it's a great statement. Therefore, be it resolved that we will not decide concerns of Christian doctrine and practice by modern cultural, sociological, and ecclesiastical trends or by emotional factors. 
that we remind ourselves that the dearly bought Baptist principle of the final authority of Scripture in matters of faith and conduct, and that we encourage the service of women in all aspects of church life and work other than pastoral functions and leadership roles entailing ordination. How many think that's a gutsy statement? And then guess what they did? Guess what they did? If you're a delegate of the General Conference watching, read this with me. <laughs> they changed the fundamental beliefs of their church to reflect the biblical teaching on this matter. Here's the wording that they amended in light of their study, the task study that they did. May 18, 2000. While both men and women are gifted for service in the church. How many of you would agree with that? The office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by Scripture. Now that took biblical courage. And if the largest denomination, the biggest ship in the Protestant fleet, could change course, surely the remnant that purports to stand for the commandments and have the faith of Jesus, surely the remnant can change. I'll go back to Timothy as I close. You see, when Timothy was converted, he moved from being a blasphemer, or Paul did, to being a converted man. God's law was written on his heart. That conversion led to a confrontation of blasphemy on a corporate level. Role distinctions were, were redefined or aligned with biblical principles. Lawlessness, especially homosexuality, was specifically addressed. And as a result, you see what we find, which was the claim at the very beginning of Paul's epistle in 1 Timothy chapter 1. This was what Paul wanted for the whole church. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord became a reality through the ministry of Timothy. What does grace do? It wipes out our sin and gives us power to have victory over sin. What does mercy do? It provides the grace we can boldly approach because of the mercy of God. Grace and mercy then put together, what, are, what does it lead to? Peace and tranquility. I'm thankful that the Adventist church has finally taken the time to study the issue of women's ordination and of homosexuality and of the supremacy of Scripture. In this same year, the church has had a commission to study homosexuality without, it's not rocket science, why they did that. And the same year, study women's ordination. And even pastors on the more moderate liberal side are terrified of the homosexual agendas that are creeping onto all of our college campuses. The question is, however, 
And this is my appeal. Will the church, will you have the courage to take the stand you need to stay? And will the church corporately have the courage to fully bring its official statements and beliefs as well as its global practice in line with the scriptures? Jesus is coming soon. Don't you believe it's time to get back to the Bible? And as we close, this is what I want to call upon you to do. What should we do right now? It's interesting to me that after defining the problem, look at the next chapter, verse, the first two verses of 1 Timothy 2, chapter 1 and 2. And I want to invite you to do that. Do what is prescribing here tonight when you leave. Here it is. First couple chapter verses here. My PowerPoint thing went down so I can't see it, so let me just read it here. Therefore, in other words, in light of everything you've learned, what's a therefore? Because of what was there before. In light of the fact that there's an attack against the law, in light of the fact that there's a specific attack concerning homosexuality, in light of the fact that role distinctions are under attack, in light of the fact that all those things are happening, that teachers have been put in place that are leading the church astray, in light of the fact that all that's happening, what should we do? Therefore, I exert first of all, I exhort first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks be made for all men. But notice what it says next. For kings and for all who are in authority. How many want to do that? The one thing you can do to take a real strong stand is to kneel down and to pray for kings and rulers and those in authority. This very week when this is going on, the world leaders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, after looking at all the committee reports, are strategizing about what to do. How many want to pray for them? Pray for kings. Pray for those in authority. You might even not believe everything that even the president does in your country or the prime minister, but still pray for them. God put them in authority. You might even, not even you know, believe in the, what the union has done where you are, the conference, but these are God's people that were put there. Pray for them. It's at least God's structure. Is it God's structure? Is it God's church? Should you pray for them? Pray for kings, those in authority. I exhort supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and those in authority. And then I want to show you something that we'll pick up tomorrow when we continue that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. You see, you see what the, uh, the goal is? Godliness, defined by God's law. Reverence. Defined by his person, the desire to be in his presence. And peace and quietness. You know what that word peace is? It's the word silence. It's the same word, root word that's used 
later on when it says, let your women keep silence. But what God wants is everybody to be silent. Everyone to live in peace. How many want that to be a reality? Well, we've studied a lot together. I think it's been a wonderful time. I've enjoyed it. How many of you like the book of Timothy? There's so much more. What we've dealt with first off here is the problem. Boy, <laughs> there's some pretty nasty stuff we looked at, isn't there? But thank God that there's not just a problem, there's also a solution. The Holy Spirit doesn't just convict of sin, He also convicts of righteousness and of judgment to come. Let's pray together as we close. Father in heaven, Lord, we're thankful that even though Alexander and Hermeneus were delivered to Satan, that they might learn not to blaspheme, that those words that they might learn give us hope. And that if Paul, who was the chief of sinners, the top teacher, a leader, a big ship, could be redirected by the Holy Spirit and could see Christ from heaven interposing, and he could change, that anyone we're concerned about today could change. Oh, Lord, we ask tonight that you would reveal yourself from heaven to the people who are honest of heart like Paul, who need to see your will and your way. If you could do it for Paul, you can do it now. And we ask that you would be with each leader, whether it be the leaders of homes, of churches, of conferences, of unions, of divisions, or our world church or whether it be even the leaders in society, oh Lord, that we could live a quiet and peaceable life. We're thankful for controversy only in this sense, that it's gotten us back into the Word, that it's gotten us to study your Word again. We're thankful for your glorious gospel, and we desire its enabling power to go with us, to work not only on us, but through us for the glory of God. In Christ's name we pray, amen and amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.com dot org.